Amen. Good morning, Epiphany. Come on, that was weak, y'all. Good morning. How y'all doing? Man, that song said you loved me. You know, there's there's no greater um, there's no greater example of the love of God like the cross of Jesus Christ. Like, there's no other place in the world in Scripture that we can look. In fact, if you read places like Ephesians two, it says with the great love in which He loved us. It's not even just loved in which He loves you. It's great love in which the Lord loves us. And that is amazing. And that is best shown through the work of the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, welcome to Epiphany Church and our Sunday morning gathering. We are a church that solely believes that we exist to join Jesus and his mission to redeem our city. Um, Speaking of the city, it's 2.6 million people, just so we're not confused on what city. Brooklyn has 2.6 million people. This specific neighborhood that we're in is called Bedford-Stuyvesant, and it has 176,000 people. In fact, I read a census earlier this week, a census that said um, they were looking at the most populated places to live by zip code. And the 11216 zip code, which is where we are now, 11216 zip code was 40th on the list in the nation. So it's a highly, highly dense place. And here's our goal as a church is to see no one go uh, go unanswered Uh, engaged with the gospel, to see no one go without saying, man, I didn't hear the gospel. You live in Bed-Stuy. Epiphany Church is in Bed-Stuy. You should hear the gospel. And that's not just by bringing them here, but that's by you guys scattering and doing life wherever you do life. And so we are grateful to be able to uh, worship together and serve this local community. If you guys can meet me in Luke 15, that's where we're going to be today. Luke 15. I know we're making a detour for those of you who aren't familiar with our church. We've been going through the book of First Peter. When you came in up the steps and saw uh, in the hospitality area, you saw a First Peter sign. That's because we've been going through, when I say the whole counsel of God's word, we try to go through it line by line. Not try. We go through it line by line, verse by verse, because we believe that God's word should direct the Um, What we're talking about as a church, what we're talking about in our small groups are governed by the word of God. And so we are going to take a slight detour just for Father's Day. Here's what we're going to do. I typically read the passage and then pray and then jump in. But because this is a narrative form and it's actually a very familiar passage, the prodigal son, because it's a narrative form, let me do this. Let me announce the topic, pray, and then read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit talk a little bit. We're going to talk today a little bit about a gracious father, a gracious father. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to engage your word. According to Psalms 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so, Father, we have no clue of what direction to go into if your word doesn't tell us. And we love that dependency that you have placed on you. So, Father, would you give us clarity this morning and direction through the word? Thank you for every single father that is in the room. We don't honor them enough, but thank you, oh God, for our fathers, our our men that uh, serve as fathers in the home and society, spiritual fathers to some who don't have fathers, uh, and all of those who do. We just thank you, oh God. We pray that our time today would um, would be convicting for believers. And I pray that the one that doesn't know Jesus Christ, first of all, thank you, Lord, for sending them here. But if they do not know Jesus, we pray that today that there is nothing they could do that you would save them. You would ransom their heart. 
the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Pray that Jesus would be the hero of the text. Pray that we wouldn't walk out of here and try to put ourselves in a hero's place. But we would realize that even as we look at the passage, that we're the one that always, always, always needs saving. And Jesus is always, always, always the one that saves. So thank you, Lord, for him and pray that he would be proclaimed. Pray that people would walk out, forget my name, but say, I heard Jesus today. Pray that he would be the hero. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. A gracious father. I was getting off the subway um, the other day as I was uh, leaving here the office and I was going home and I was getting off the subway. And as I was coming up the stairwell, and it's not a far walk to get to my house. As I was coming to my house, I noticed that there was a tow truck outside. Tow truck was towing this car away that's literally been sitting across the street for like three or four weeks. It got flat tires. It should have been gone. I, I don't even know how it didn't get tickets. There was no tickets on the car. It just sat for weeks and weeks. And as I was walking past it, I saw the tow truck actually chaining the car up and getting it ready to put it on top of the, uh, on top of the truck and tow it away. So as I was going in, I was opening the gate. There was a gate to get through to my door. So I was opening the gate to get ready to go in. And my neighbor, a couple of doors down, says to me, they finally got the wrecker out here. So I shook my head like, yeah. And then I go in. I'm like, I'm baffled. I have no clue what he's talking about. What is a wrecker? So I go inside and I, I'm familiar with the term. I do what everybody else would have done. I Googled wrecker. Well, I found out, and you may have known, you guys look smart. I wasn't that smart. So when I got inside and Googled it, I found out that a wrecker is actually the nickname of a tow truck here in the United States. Well, in contrast, if you take a, you get on a flight and head to England, and you look at the tow trucks in England, they actually have a different name for tow trucks. We call them wreckers here in the United States. But in England, they call them recovery trucks. In fact, stenciled on every tow truck in England is the word recovery. I simply lift this to you to say this is the same vehicle. It's the same mission. In fact, it's the same purpose, but two different perspectives. And the reason I wanted to bring this as a segue into the sermon is because all of humanity Everybody that you know, everybody that's in this room, from the sound booth all the way to the babies in the other room, are what's known as wreckers. We wreck everything. Okay, let me put some Bible there. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin causes us to wreck everything. But Jesus, his mission is different. When Jesus came on the scene, he has stenciled on his chest recovery. And so the passage that we're going to get into today, what you're going to see is really Jesus unfolding what his mission statement is in Luke 19, verse number 10. You don't have to turn there. It simply says that this is what it says about Jesus. It says, For the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. In our passage today, we're going to see how a young man wrecks everything. But we're also going to see how far Jesus goes to really live up to the, the title on his chest of recovery. Amen. We get to see how far that is going to go. Now, our story today is going to be presented to us in what's known as a parable. I don't know if you guys have ever heard a parable, but a parable is a way to, it's a story. It's a way to illustrate a point. Uh, Jesus often used parables. In fact, if you read the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what you'll find is that Je at least 35 times Jesus told stories through a parable. In fact, there's a, there's a place, a, a verse tucked away in Mark chapter 4, verse 34, that says, 
he didn't say anything without using parables. Mm. And Jesus often used parables really for two reasons. The first reason Jesus used a parable is to reveal truth to those who wanted to know it. So that's why he gave parables. But there's a second reason. The second reason Jesus gave parables is to conceal truth from those who were indifferent. If you don't believe me, go back. You don't have to do it now in your time, devotional time. Go back to Luke chapter 8, verse 10. Jesus tells a parable of the sower. And literally the disciples come up to him and say, why did you, what does that parable mean? And Jesus says, what I'm telling you is for you to know. But for the, those who are not a part of the kingdom, it says this. It says, for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not hear. Wait a second. Jesus told stories to conceal truth, to literally confuse the crowd. I never tell stories to confuse the crowd. If I tell a story as a part of a sermon, my point is to enhance what the text is really saying. But Jesus sometimes did it to conceal truth. But in our passage today, he's not concealing truth. This is a parable where he is trying to reveal truth. Jesus shows us in our passage of the prodigal son how far God the father will go to rescue a sinner. That's what our passage is about. And in order to understand our passage, we, we will not understand the prodigal son, which is found in verses 11 through 32. We will not understand it if we do not understand verses 1 and 2. I, I promise you, if we, if we take this story out of context, we won't understand the story. So if you guys will indulge me for a moment and let me go to verse number one and two, before we get to the prodigal son story, it will be beneficial for all of us. Verse number one. Verse number one says this. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Let me pause there for a second. There, there's something very important that you have to pick up when it comes to Jesus. Jesus has tax collectors and sinners drawing near to him. It's amazing when we look at the church today, what we want draw near to the church is well-packaged people. We want people to draw to the church that have it all together and seemingly outwardly have it all together, but inwardly they're dying. We don't want like trifling mess in the church. We first started our church in the very, very beginning. We only had a couple of people. And I used to say to the crew of people that we had, y'all are just too well put together. You know what we need in Epiphany Church? We need some ratchetness in the church. Look at who's drawing near to Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners. And side note for Epiphany Church, listen, if we don't have sinful, messy people drawing near to the church, we are missing the mark. What we need drawing to the church is people who just don't have it together. If a dude right now was to walk in off the street with a 40 in his hand and sit next to you, how uncomfortable would this room be? If he was to walk in with a bottle of Patron, I'd probably say slip a little of my coffee. But that's, <laughs> listen, come on. I'm kidding. That was a joke. Listen, if a prostitute that was working the corner all night long walked in straight off the corner, sat right here next to Timmy. Right, I would have a fit. But if she walked in and sat right next to Timmy, how uncomfortable would this room be? Tasha would be run up here with a lap scarf trying to put it over her. But understand something about Jesus. That's who's drawing near to Jesus. But what we want is well-packaged, clean people drawing near to Jesus when the reality is, who's drawing near to him? Bible says tax collectors, sinners. And so when tax collectors and sinners draw near to Jesus, which means they're drawing near to his church, 
Church should be messy. Church should have issues. And if Epiphany Church never has issues, we're not drawing real, real sinners. Let's look back at the text and try to make sense of who's in the crowd. Because if we just read tax collectors and keep going, we don't understand the impact of God's lavish grace that he's going to give to the son. The Bible says in verse number one, that tax collectors are drawing near. Let's try to do some justice to what tax collectors are. Because I think when we read tax collector, we simply think that they were hated in the Bible because of their shady business practices. Yes, they were. They were hated because they bought the right from Rome to collect taxes on Israel. So in many ways, they were traitors. But they bought the right from Rome to collect taxes. And what they did was Rome would require $80 they would charge you 100, give Rome 80 and pocket 20. Now, if if, if that's the only reason they're hated, me, I'm personally like, get over the $20. That's not the only reason they're hated. The second reason they're hated is because of their affiliation with the Roman government. I know you saw 300. I know you saw Gladiator and you thought that those, those armies were like brutal. Listen, Rome was ruthless. Rome was violent. Rome was wicked. Their army was perverted. They would literally walk into a Jewish household, rape the wife, rape the daughter, and walk out. And the crazy thing is, nobody could do anything about it. And so you have to understand why tax collectors are hated. They are collecting taxes to fund an army that literally will walk into your house and rape your wife. Walk into your house and rape your daughter. The reason I'm lifting this up to you is because you have to understand when we read tax collector, we just say, oh, he collected some money. No. How do you fund, provide food, give weapons to a massive army? Taxes. And so the dude down the street that's collecting taxes from you is collecting. It's almost like he's collecting taxes to give it to ISIS. Like consider how brutal the Roman army is. And so. The tax collectors are, but these are the dudes that are drawing near to Jesus. These dudes that are hated by society are drawing near to Jesus. The second group that's drawing near to him, the scripture just lifts it up for us. Now, tax collectors and sinners, sinners were typically, you're known as a sinner by your occupation. So if you're a prostitute, you are a sinner. You're, You're known by your physical condition. So if you're sick, you're a sinner. So what the text is telling us is that ISIS is drawing near to Jesus, prostitutes are drawing near to Jesus, sick people are drawing near to Jesus. Something about, this is what I was talking to you guys about last week when we were in 1 Peter, and we talked about the term kylos in Greek, which literally means like a beautiful life or an attractive life. Jesus is attracting people that the typical synagogues of that time were not attracting. In fact, they were shunning those people, but no, Jesus says, listen, Tax collectors, come on over here, which makes which makes Luke 19 when he saved Zacchaeus in a sycamore tree, which makes that a scandal. Jesus walks up to the tree. There's a short man that climbs up into a tree. And what does he say to him? Come down, make haste. Today, I'm going to abide at your house. He saved not just a tax collector. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. So you got you get to see the rescue mission of Jesus. He came to seek, save that which was lost, not the one that thinks he's found, but the one that is lost. And so tax collectors are there. Sinners are there. But there's one more group of people that's at the party. It says they were all drawing near to hear him. Verse number two. And the Pharisees 
and the scribes. So you don't just have sinful people who are not a part of the, the, the culture. You now have the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, let me quickly, quickly just unpack a Pharisee and a scribe. A Pharisee was one of the most religious people in town. Like to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, Leviticus. Has anybody in here memorized a verse in Leviticus? <laughs> they memorized 27 chapters of Leviticus. You had to do that. And so when we're talking about religiosity, they're the, they're the ones that would, would see the law and add to it. Your law just isn't strict enough. Let me add more rules to it. So they were religious people. And I know you think that you're religious because you did your She Reads Devotional Truth this morning. I know you think you're religious because you memorized the verse. You know, you got your John 3.16 shirt on. You know, you came to church this morning. You served faithfully in some capacity. So you think that you're a religious person. Listen to me. Pharisees, as it relates to Pharisees and your religion, they would roll you up and smoke you. They are religious people. And so, but understand who's drawing near to Jesus. Understand this crowd. You have sinners, prostitutes, sick people. You have tax collectors, and you got the religious elite. All in Jesus Baptist Church. All of them are gathering together. Now, why is this important for us? This is important for us because when Jesus gives us the parable of the prodigal son, all three of those groups are in the crowd. It's important that you, that you remember that because literally Jesus is giving the parable as a response to what the Pharisees are doing. Let me just quickly read the rest of verse number two. Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So basically what you see is Jesus giving not just this parable, but the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. He gives three back-to-back-to-back parables simply to show them how far he will go to reach a sinner. Let's look at the, par- the, the prodigal now, the, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, if you could quickly jump with me to verse 11. Now that we understand who Jesus is telling this to, verse 11 says, and he said, talking about Jesus, here's the story. And, and by the way, we're, verse 11 to 32 we're literally going to just like do the wobble and electric slide straight through. Like I'm not even going to like we're just going to go right through it. And, and in many ways, the text actually actually preaches itself. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it, talk a little bit and get back in the text because it literally the story is profound. Verse number 11. And he said there was a man who had two sons. Scripture affirms that there's two sons. This is important because. If you read the subscription, I don't know what your Bible says. The the subscription above my passage says the prodigal son. But if you read the story, there's two sons. So there's a younger son, which is the prodigal. There's a there's an older brother. But then there's a third person. The Bible says that there was a man who had two sons. That means there's a father present as well. So what you have in this story is two sons and you have a gracious Father, why is this important? Because if we only look at what the subscription says of the prodigal son, if we only look at the prodigal son, you will miss the grace that the father is going to give to the older brother. Yeah, that's right. And that is going to become very, very important for us. And so two sons, a father. That sounds like a bad joke I'm about to say, but it's not. There's two sons and there's a father. Verse 11. And he said there was a man who had two sons. Verse 12. 
And the younger of them, so let's focus on the younger. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. This is, this is interesting because in ancient times, you typically got your inheritance when the father died. Yeah. So when the father died, all of the land and the animals, they would divide them for the sons and they would give them to the sons. But the son now is asking the father for his inheritance while he's alive. What he's basically saying is, you're as good as dead to me. You don't need to be alive. Give me my inheritance. He's tired of being. It's almost like the Wizard of Oz. You know, Dorothy spends the first part of the movie trying to get away from home. And then she gets to Oz and spends the rest of the story trying to get back home to Kansas. That is exactly what the prodigal son is. So the prodigal son says, listen, I know you're alive, but I'm severing my relationship with you by simply asking you, give me my stuff. That's what the prodigal son is showing. Now, it almost seems as though the father gives it to him carelessly. I mean, consider the fact that the request is made in verse 12 and in verse 12, the request is granted. Like the father doesn't think about it, you know, for a couple of verses and then give it to him or give him a piece of it in verse 12 and the rest of it in verse 30. No, in verse 12, he asks for it and verse 12, he gets it. But don't be mistaken. This was not easy for the father to give up. And we will know it's not easy by the actions of the father later on in the story. And so even though he's given it quickly, Trust me, it is hurting him. And just by practical application, since it is Father's Day, a good father will always give to his son, even when he doesn't think it's good for him. And the reason he does it is because he wants the Holy Spirit to teach the lesson. One of the things I have to be careful of as a father is I often want to teach my boys the lesson. I often want to sit them down and say, this is what you're supposed to do. And yes, we should provide wise counsel for our children. But there are some points where we should let them make their own decisions and move out of the way. And the reason we have to move out of the way is because we will end up playing the role of the Holy Spirit. Fathers, you're good men, but you're not the Holy Spirit. So the father gives it to him. I mean, in the same verse, he says, can I have my stuff? He gives it to him. Now, what does the son do with it? Told you the text preaches itself. Verse 13, watch what the son does with it. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. So the son gets the stuff and he takes it to a far country and he spends his all of the property on reckless living. Now, if we just read reckless living, we will miss what's really happening. It behooves us to understand the depth of the sin that the younger brother is in. Reckless living is going to be defined by the older brother in verse number 30. We'll get there. But in verse 30, he tells us what he's spending his money on. It says that he spends it on prostitutes, not prostitutes, single, plural prostitutes. So this isn't a one night stand. This is I'm spending all of my money, all of what you've given me on a bunch of prostitutes. Now, this is important because, again, If we don't unpack the depth of the sin that the younger brother is in, you will not know how deep the father's love goes for you. Because I know what we'll do is be like, "Mm, I'm not the prodigal son. I would never do that. Don't ever say what you would never do. And, 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 And just the fact that you didn't spend your money on prostitutes, some of you didn't spend your money on prostitutes, there's other sin in your life. And the father will go just as far. So the Bible tells us that he spends it on reckless 
living. Romans chapter 5, verse number 20, I love this verse. It says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. If you've walked in here and you walked in here and you're like, man, I'm hanging my head down because surely the Lord can't forgive me. Consider the fact that he's about to give grace to a dude that spent everything on prostitutes. I simply want to put it this way. You cannot out the cross. The cross is the cross and you can't out it. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what sin pops into your mind. That sin was forgiven 2,000 years ago on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I know we're a quiet church, but you should be a little bit more. You should make a little bit more noise when you consider that your sin has been forgiven by the cross of Jesus Christ. So the Bible says he spent all the money on reckless living. And so his reckless living led him deeper and deeper into sin. Let's continue on with the text. Let it preach itself. Let's see how far his sin will take him. Verse number 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine, not a famine, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Verse number 16. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. The prostitute was putting it on him so bad that he ended up spending all of his money and ran out of money. A famine hit the land and now he's in need to the point where keep in mind, this is a Jew we're talking. This is God's chosen people we're talking about. He spent all of his money and now he's about to eat what the pigs eat. The slop that the pigs eat, he's now about to eat. Now, this speaks to, again, how deep sin will go. Because what we do is we'll try to rationalize sin. We'll say, I'll do this, but I won't go that far. Look at the prodigal son. Look how deep it sent him. Sin always takes you further than you want to go. It makes you spend what you don't want to spend. And it typically keeps you longer than you are willing to stay. Anybody in here ever said, you know what? I'm just going to text him. That's it. I ain't going to do it. I'm not going over his house. I'm just going to text him. And you ended up in in the back of a Honda Civic at the creep spot. Listen, sin takes us farther than we are really willing to go. What we'll say is, I'm just curious. I just want to see what it's like. And curiosity leads you down a sinful path. Sin always goes far. This is why we talked last week when we talked about the passions of the flesh. What did we say? They wage war against you. And so the flesh is waging war against you. You better wage war back against the flesh. Sin takes this man. He takes him way, way further than he wanted to go. Now, if you're in here and you're like, man, that's me. I have no hope. What am I supposed to do? Thank God that I don't sat to sit here and make up something. The text tells us what he does. Let's look back at it. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him. Now watch this. Here's repentance. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as a hired servant, though not the main point of the parable. There is something here that is profound that I think we really should talk about. Now, again, this is not the main point, but consider what repentance looks like. When the younger son repents, he does not simply say sorry for spending all of the property. Look at what he says. He says, I've sinned against two things, God 
I've sinned against heaven. And then he says, and I've sinned against you. Normally in our repentance, we either do one or the other. We'll say, God, I'm sorry, but my sin, you know, we think we sin in a vacuum and our sin doesn't vacuum, you know, it doesn't hurt other people. When the reality is the sin is not just against God, but he also sinned against the father. Or we'll say, you know what? I'll apologize to that person, but not realize that your offense primarily is to the father. And so look at what he says. This is good repentance. Again, it's not the main point, but this is good repentance. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven. And I've sinned against you. The other thing that we should pick up in these verses, verses 18 and 19, is that the son, he's not actually having the conversation with his father yet. He's rehearsing the conversation that he's going to have with the father. When I was younger, I was a freshman in high school. Y'all know when I, when I start to tell these stories, I, you know, my parents, my father is here, my mother's here. And I typically get myself in trouble because I tell stuff that they didn't even know happened. <laughs> But when I was a freshman in high school, uh, we, it was a group of us, all freshmen. We had one friend that was older, and this one friend was old enough to buy liquor. So he said, man, go to the liquor store and buy some liquor. We're going to meet you at the park, and we, you know, we gonna, we're not going to get drunk. We're just going to get nice, right? We're just going to have a taste. And so we get to the park. He comes, and he has a little, little, little brown bag that's full of, I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's called Cisco. Oh. Ugh, ugh is right. <laughs> Like the Urban Dictionary defines Cisco as liquid crack. I'm not kidding. Google it. Urban Dictionary says Cisco is liquid crack. I will never, ever in my life, if I smell anything that smells like Cisco, I get nauseous to my stomach. And so we're at the park. He pulls out this bag. He says, man, this is all I have. And so he pulls out Cisco and he passes it around. There's a couple left in the bag. And so we're, you know, we didn't drink like that. So we're all sipping just a little bit, right? We're not getting too much. But I'm looking at my brother, and he's drinking, my, my older brother, he's drinking like it's Kool-Aid. Like, he's just, like, down in it. Like, he grabs another one out the bag, and he's down in the second one. And my brother gets, when I say sloppy drunk, it's like, you know that dude on house party that they had to carry home, and they left him at the door? His mother opened it, he fell in. That's how my brother was. And so on the way home, I'm doing what the prodigal son is doing. I'm rehearsing in my mind what I'm going to say to my parents when I get in. I was going to be like, man, he had a bad taco. Something wasn't right. He ate, and now he's sick. My brother was all messed up. So we get to the house, and everything I rehearsed, I completely forgot. That is what the younger son is doing. He spends his father's property. He says to himself while he's in the midst of the pig pen, I'm going to go home. But before I go home, I better get my thoughts together. So let me rehearse what I'm going to say. But it's important that we understand what he says in his rehearsing. Because when he actually gets to it, you're going to see how profound God's grace is. Watch what he says. He says three things in his rehearsing. He says, Father, I've sinned against you. Excuse me. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. Second thing he says is, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Here's the third thing. If you're writing them down, please write the third one down. In fact, I would go so far as to say circle it. The third thing that he says is treat me as a hired servant. Now, you're going to see how important that is. Now, you would think that the son would go to the father and immediately start to say this, the speech that he rehearsed. Watch verse 20, though. It says, and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Please note this. Felt compassion, ran, embraced him and kissed him. So the father sees the son that squandered all of his property that literally said, you're as good as dead to me. He sees him from afar off, still in the field. Bible says he feels compassion. 
he runs to him, he embraces him, and he kisses him. Now, keep in mind who is in the crowd. At this point, the sinners and the tax collectors are rejoicing. They're high-fiving like, listen, the Father is going to accept us. He's not just going to accept us. He's going to embrace us. He feels compassion for us. He loves us. He's going to kiss us. The religious elite are going crazy right now. It's no way the father will do that. You know why they're feeling like that? Remember I said they had to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's a verse tucked away in Deuteronomy 21 that they would have known. If they were hearing this story, they would have known this passage in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21 says this. I'm just going to read it. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his voice or the voice of the mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them. Then his father and mother shall take a hold of him. Bring him out to the elders of the city of the gate in the place where he lives. And they shall say to all the elders of the city, this son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and he is a drunkard. Here's verse 21. Then all the men of the city should stone him to death. And so the religious elite are sitting, listening to this story. And they're like, oh, surely the father's going to run. But when he runs to him, he's going to kill him. He's running and he's going to have a stone. Do you know how crazy this is that the father actually gets there, embraces him and kisses him? Listen, if you're in here and you're like, listen, I know the Lord is going to punish me. I know I turned up last night. I know that I'm, I'm full out there in sin. The father wants to embrace you. You think he's going to reach you with a stone when the text tells us the father actually is going to come and embrace you and he's going to kiss you. What the text shows us is that the sinners are going to rejoice here. The sinners and the tax collectors are excited about this part of the text because they're, they're like, they would have known, possibly known Deuteronomy 21 too. They would have said, listen, the father's going to meet us, but he's going to have wrath and judgment. When the reality is the cross of Jesus Christ provides grace and mercy when it should provide wrath and judgment. Like, don't sit in here privileged. Don't sit in here like you, you know, like the Lord's supposed to do that. No, he should meet you with wrath and judgment, but he doesn't. He meets us, according to the text, with grace and mercy. And that's shown through compassion, through the fact that he ran. Let me, let's deal with that for a second. The father runs to him. Now, yes, the son is walking home, but the scripture shows us that the father runs to the son. That's important. And just a quick theological check in here. You never chase God. God always chases you. Please, if you keep this in context with the other parables, the preceding parables, the parable of the lost uh, sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the sheep didn't search for the shepherd. The lost coin didn't somehow search for the woman. But the Bible says that the woman ripped the house apart and searched diligently. God always, always, always chases sinners. Sinners don't chase God. This is known as total depravity. What do I mean by that? Jeremiah 17, 9 will say that the heart is sick. It's desperately sick is what the text says. Sick hearts don't search for Jesus. Jesus searches for sick hearts. So the text tells us, listen, God is the one seeking after you. Here's a verse for you, John 15, verse 16. This is what Jesus said. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. You'll go bear fruit. So the moment that you believed in Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus, it wasn't because you found God. He's not lost. He found you. So the text tells us, listen, the father sees him from afar off. He runs to him. 
He embraces him. He feels compassion and he kisses him. Now, finally, the son is going to be able to say the speech that he prepared. Remember, he's prepared this speech. And I told you to jot down the three points that he prepared. Watch he starts to say the speech and watch what happens. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. This is consistent. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This is consistent. But note verse 22. But the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. He literally interrupts his thought process. Now, remember, he's supposed to say, Father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I told you to circle this. Treat me as a hired servant. Notice, treat me as a hired servant isn't anywhere in the text anymore. Why? Because the grace interrupts him from trying to get back just as a servant. And here's the crazy thing. God bringing the father, bringing him back as a servant would have been gracious. He's in the pig pen. That would have been. But he doesn't restore him back to just a servant. He restores him back to as a son. Remember, Jesus has on his his chest recovery. And that is what he's restoring him back to. And the and the three symbolic gestures, materialistic gestures that he gives him are all symbolic to the fact that he's restoring him back as a son. Wow. He gives him a robe, not just a robe, the best robe. He gives him the best robe and the robe really is for honored guests. It's to restore him back as a son. Not to mention the fact this is why I love the gospel, not to mention the fact that the robe literally covers the pig mess that he would have been in. It literally covers them. And so when you stand before God and you stand with all of your sin and your mess, if you've trusted in Jesus, his robe of righteousness will cover you. Is that not good news? And you'll get to hear words. This is crazy. You'll get to hear words like holy and blameless and just realizing that you've spent all your money on prostitutes. This is the grace of our God. He interrupts him. He says, bring me a robe, not a robe. Bring me the best robe. What else does he says? He says, bring me a ring. A ring is symbolic to sonship and authority. He says, bring me, bring me shoes, put shoes on his feet. Why shoes? Because servants walked around barefooted. Sons don't walk around barefooted. He says, put shoes on his feet. He interrupts his thought process of man. Treat me as a hired servant. No, 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 no. You're a son. Come in here. And then after he tells him he's a son and then gives him three symbolic gestures to show that he's the son. He then throws a party. Look at the text. I'm just simply going to read these quickly. He says, and bring the fatted calf, verse 23, and kill it and let us celebrate, circle celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. Here's a, here it is again. And they begin to celebrate. So the father not only accepts him back as a son, the father goes so far as to celebrate the son coming back. Notice we're going to get to it, but he's not going to celebrate the son that stayed. See, because what we do is we be like, I stayed. I'm good. No, 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 no. All of heaven, not just in this parable and the lost coin. The lady says, gather my friends together. I found my coin. The lost sheep. He leaves it. He leaves the ninety nine to go after the one. He is passionate about reaching you. And if you're in this room, you should be rejoicing over the fact that God will go that far to reach you. And when he does reach you, all of heaven celebrates. 
Now remember who's in the crowd. The tax collectors, the sinners, and up to this point, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes are pissed off. They have not received any grace up until this point. But watch what happens. Let me show you how lavish this party is. Verse 25. And his older brother was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, so he's not at the house yet. He drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. First of all, I'm good if you hear music. You hear dancing? That party's legit. My, my, my neighbors behind me, they often have a barbecue. And when, whenever they have a barbecue, first of all, their barbecues are dope. I, you know, when I have a little something in my house, we got one little speaker that we play, you know, PJ Morton out of. Listen, they literally have a DJ come to the house, wow. set up his stuff. And I know how legit the barbecue is by how much bass is coming out that subwoofer. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what the food is like, but the music they doing, they thing over there. When I was in college, same thing. When I was in college on Friday nights, across the campus, they used to have parties every Friday night. And my friends and I would pick the party we'd go to. We would pick it by who was bumping the loudest music. So the brother is in the field. The Bible doesn't say he comes to the house. He draws near to the house and he hears music and dance. And the reason I want to lift this to you is because you get to see how dope the party is for the son that left and came back. He's not just saying, welcome back, give him a shoe, give him the old ones, give him a just, no. Best robe, ring, shoes, let's party. Get the fatted calf. Not just anything, get the fatted calf. You know, that, that the, the, the filet mignon and the ribeye and the, and the burger, you know, you, you ain't have a burger till you get a burger that's medium rare. You crumble some blue cheese on top. I'm just telling you how to do it. Somebody said, ew, the devil is a liar. <laughs> Crumble a little blue cheese on the top, a little slice of lettuce, a little, you know, a little slice of, uh, of tomato, barbecue sauce, and just a little bit of mayo. I promise you'll speak in tongues. I promise. I promise. I promise it. He has a fatted calf. He kills it and says, let's bring this into the party. Now watch what the older brother does. The Bible says that he draws near. He hears the music. He hears the dancing. Verse 27, I mean 26. And he called one of his servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, the brother, but he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. And I've never disobeyed your command. And you have never given me a young goat. First of all, they have a fatted calf inside. Why do you want goat? Right. I mean, beyond goat's cheese, what else is goat good for? Oh, that's right. Come on. I repent. Oh, I'm so sorry. I should close this Bible and sit down right now. That is true. Curry goat. Y'all just messed up where I was going, though. I'm literally messed up. Curry goat is legit. What is wrong with me? <laughs> Verse 29. And he answered him and he looked inside many years. Let's rewind that. We're going to cut that out of the podcast too. <laughs> I feel real suspect right now. <laughs> then many years I've served you and have never disobeyed your command. Yet you've never given me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now he's really about to pop off at the mouth. Watch what he says here. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. Here's why I rejoice in this text. I rejoice in this text 
Because, you know, sometimes I'm envious, and I've heard some of your conversion stories. I'm envious of the people that typically say, man, I got saved from a life of drugs. You know, I was way out there, and I got saved. That wasn't my story. You know what I got saved from? I got saved from religion. Wow. I didn't get saved from the streets. I got saved from church. I don't even know how else to put this. So when I read texts like this, I'm typically like, man, he's going after the sinner. I get that. He's going after the prostitute. I get that. that. That makes sense to me. But he doesn't do that at the expense of the religious elite. He entreats them to come into the party too. Wow. So Jesus, the grace that Jesus provides is not just simply for the, the, the prostitute. It's not simply for the one that is way out and far from the Lord. It's also for the religious elite that may know the scripture. You come to church. You come faithfully, but you don't know the Lord. Listen, the scripture tells us today that he's entreating you to come as well. Come on into the party. Let's finish up this this text because I don't have any more time. Verse 31. And he said to him, this son of your, I'm sorry, verse 31. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost. And he is now found. Notice in in, in this text, in this story, the sinner gets saved. The tax collector is able to get saved. But the religious lead is able to get saved as well. You're able to get saved as well. Going through the motions of religiosity, you're able to get saved. Text tells us that he entreats the older brother. He says, come on in. And what we see here is God's grace get like lavishly given to us. There is no greater place. I'll end here. There's no greater place to see the lavish grace that God will give to you like the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross of Jesus Christ over 2,000 years ago, he sends his son. He didn't have 10, one and only son. He didn't pick somebody else. He didn't send Gabriel. He didn't send the archangel Michael. He sent his one and only son to die on your behalf. And because he dies on your behalf, those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, this is the gospel. You now get to you get to stand before God as though you live like Jesus. And here's the crazy part. He was condemned like he lived like you. Never walked a day in your shoes, but he takes and absorbs all of your sin. What we do is I'll end with with this. I know you guys saw this uh, this scale balance up here, this little measuring. What is it called? Measuring balance. Scale, just a scale, but I feel like a scale is a thing you step on and it says your weight. Anyway, measuring scale. We think that when we stand before the Lord, there'll be this cosmic scale. And we think that, you know, what, what God will do is he'll outweigh our good, our bad with our good. And so we think what the Lord will do is he'll say to us, well, you know, what, what did you do with your life? And we'll say, well, I helped the old lady across the street. So let me, that should count for something. And then we'll think to ourselves, ah, but I cussed my neighbor out. Ah, that was bad. Wait, 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 wait. But this morning, I got up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I I read my devotional, and I prayed. That was good. And we think, oh, no, wait, 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 wait. I cheated on my taxes. Mm, That's not good. And we think that God will do this whole thing, and he'll outweigh our life, and, and hopefully, prayerfully, our... This bad, our good will outweigh our bad. I should have had to put it on this side. 
our good will outweigh our bad. And we think when we stand before the Lord, he'll have this cosmic justice system and he'll say, listen, I know you've done bad, but your good outweighs it. The problem with this scale system is, yes, we need to repent of this, but he's so holy, this is an offense to him. Isaiah 64, verse number six. What does it say? Our righteousness is a filthy rag. So when you stand before the Lord with this, you're condemned, you're crushed. That is why we stand before the Lord purely based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, because there is no other way to stand before him. That does not work. Jesus works. Every head bow, every eye closed. My God in heaven. Let me tell you something. There there are people that have walked in today that legitimately think that they're good while out where they're bad. Please notice something about the older brother. He didn't come in because of his performance. Your performance doesn't get you into heaven. He came in because the father gave him grace and entreated him to come in. It's the only reason he got in. He didn't get thrown. No fatted calf was cut up and killed for him because he stayed. The gospel doesn't say that you are accepted based on performance. In other words, the gospel goes so far as to free us from performing. You don't have to perform for God. You know why you don't have to perform for God the Father? Because Jesus performed on your behalf. And his performance is perfect. That, out, that scale system that I was talking about, the good versus the bad, the problem with that is that our good isn't accepted because God doesn't demand good. He demands perfect. Anybody in here, just don't answer this. Anybody in here ever lived perfectly? I doubt it. So therefore, all of us are sinners. Therefore, all of us need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful today for your word. I genuinely pray that we would walk out and the believer would feel a a sense of conviction. A sense of conviction over not really living up to par, living for you, not based on salvation. We're saved already because of you. But because of that, now we have to act like we're saved. We have to work out our salvation. And so, Father, would you convict us today? Pray that the word would cut deep into our hearts and that we would be doers of the word, not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. Many Sundays we've walked out of here and deceived ourselves, thinking that we're okay. In reality, we're not. Father, would you encourage our hearts? Thank you for every father again in this room. I pray for them. I pray, Lord, that we would be, try to be fathers that model after you. May we be more gracious. May we be more loving. May we be more kind and forgiving as the father was in this text. It's in Christ's name and Christ's name alone we pray. Amen.